Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we're coming to your word. It is manna from on high. It is the solid joy and lasting treasure of which we just sang. Lord, give us true hunger, humble attentiveness, and an obedient desire to apply every word you speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Take out your copy of God's Word, if you would, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, We've been in Hebrews for a year now, but we're really, I think, coming to the crescendo of the argument, the high point of the argument. We'll look at it today and and next week, the end of of chapter 12. Um, But let me remind you of the context. This, This letter, as we know it, was probably originally a sermon or a series of sermons preached by a pastor to his beloved flock, and the, the flock was largely made up of Jewish believers. They, they were raised in Judaism. They've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, which means they've left so much behind. They've left the temple behind and all the sacrifices. They've left the priesthood. They've left their friends, and they exchanged it all for the worship of the invisible God through a once-for-all sacrifice by a resurrected and ascended high priest who now sits at the throne of God in heaven. It it was a stark change, not just what they believed as they were completed, in a sense, to believe the Messiah that they had longed for under the Old Covenant, but it was a stark change in their worship because there was such simplicity in New Covenant worship. That's been a mark of Christian worship from the very beginning, that it's not marked by sights and sounds and smells, because we're worshiping that which cannot be seen. Well, now the new and the novel is starting to wear off for those Hebrew believers, and as persecution is increasing both from the Jews and from Nero and, and the emperor's palace, some of these Hebrew believers have decided to go back. They've decided it, they miss the ways of the old covenant. They miss what they left behind, and they look around at the simplicity of Christian worship, and they say, I want to go back. And their dear broken-hearted pastor is now coming to the, the, the high point of his argument, saying, you must not go back. Well, why? Why shouldn't we go back? Because Jesus is better. Well, Jesus is better than what? Jesus is better than everything else. That's been what he's, the argument he's made throughout Hebrews, but he's coming to the high point of it here. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight, and it's talking about what we read back in Exodus 19 at Sinai. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, Christian, you have come 
to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It's probably not a secret that I love living in Beaufort. In fact, you may not be able to see my tie this morning, but my tie is a map of Beaufort. And so coming home to plant this church 10 years ago was very exciting to me. But I find when I talk to people about Beaufort, there's two radically different experiences. So for some, like me, Beaufort means breathtaking scenery, boundless opportunity, and beautiful people. For others, the experience of Beaufort is very different. To them, Beaufort means boot camp. And there's not a whole lot about boot camp to enjoy. That's the design of it. So with boot camp, you don't get all those good things. You get, you get stifling heat and swarming mosquitoes and surly drill instructors. And occasionally, I'll meet people on travels and in various places, and I'll meet people, and, and they'll find out I'm from Beaufort, and they'll say, I'll never go back to that place. And I know immediately what that means. It, it means you were at boot camp. You didn't get to enjoy the scenery or the people. In fact, you didn't get to enjoy anything at all. And so I'll, I'll usually say to them, I know you've been there, but you've never really experienced Beaufort, and you don't know what you're missing. In much the same way, the author of Hebrews is thinking about these folks who once professed to be believers, but have walked away from the faith in Jesus Christ. And he's saying here, if you're willing to turn away from Jesus, that means you've never really experienced him before. You've never really encountered him before, and you have no idea what you're missing. It's not that those people had never been to church before. They had been to church many times. But the problem is they had never really encountered Jesus Christ in worship. You know that's possible, right? You know it's possible to be in church every week and never encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that their bodies weren't in worship, it's that their hearts weren't there. Their hearts were were far away, their hearts were running after the world, even while their bodies were sitting in church. And so to them, they could not see the wonder and the privileges they had in Christian worship. And that's evident because they're now leaving the faith. And so this pastor is saying to the remnant, those who have not left the faith because of persecution, they've not left to go run after those things that they had once left behind. And he's saying to them, I want to show you a glimpse, just a small glimpse of the privilege of Christian worship. That's what this passage is about. And, and the author does it in a really fascinating way. The whole book of Hebrews has been about comparison. So it's not just Jesus is better, it's Jesus is better than. 
And, and, and the author has taken us through. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the temple. He's taken them through this whole litany of comparisons and contrasts to show the goodness of Jesus Christ in comparison to all of it. Well, here he's doing something a little bit different. It's the same concept, but here he's showing two ways of worship. The way of Mount Sinai and the way of Mount Zion. Sinai was really quintessential, the quintessential picture of Old Covenant worship. Zion, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, that is quintessential New Covenant worship. And so the author is going to compare and contrast those two because he wants to show us the superiority of Christian worship. And that's going to be fascinating because the picture of old covenant worship, the picture of Sinai there with the thunder, with the sounds, the sights, the smells, it's so intriguing to the flesh. But the point of this passage is what we have in Jesus Christ when we gather to worship is exponentially better. What we're going to do this morning, Lord willing, is look at these two great worship events. First at Sinai, and then second, the eternal service of worship that you and I enter into every time we gather with the saints in the heavenly Jerusalem through corporate worship. So let's look at that. We're going to look at first at Sinai, then at Zion. Let's look at what happened at Sinai. This is the scene that I read earlier from Exodus 19. God's people had been in slavery. They had not been able to gather in corporate worship. And God wonderfully and sovereignly set them free from Pharaoh's rule. And he calls them to gather at Sinai. He tells them to go get their best clothes, refrain from anything that might make them unclean so that they can gather in the worship of God. It, it, we have to understand it wasn't so much about the place, but about the presence. God would give the, the people a glimpse of his glory, a small glimpse of his glory at Sinai. And the scriptures explain this scene, but you read it and you realize human language really can't capture how substantial, how amazing this scene is. Just imagine what it's like to, to be called to worship, and the ground trembles. The sky goes black, except for occasional sporadic forks of lightning in the gloom. And then ear-piercing rolls of thunder come, only to be drowned out by a choir of celestial trumpets. This is the scene here. It's, It's a visible and traumatic display of the holiness and majesty of God. Do you realize that? That to encounter the holiness of God is trauma. It is transformative. It's trauma in the most positive sense of the word. It changes us. It wrecks who we are. It wrecks our own self-understanding and presents us with a right sense of the glory of who God is. Nobody in Scripture steps into the presence of God and is bored by it. Nobody in Scripture steps into the presence of God and sees Him in His glory and leaves without being profoundly transformed by it. That's the trauma of the mountain. It was so charged with the holiness of God 
that if even an animal touched it, that animal had to be put to death from a distance because nobody could touch that animal without dying. And the people, they encounter this scene and all they can think is, this is not safe for us. We can't, we can't be here. The presence of God was for them unbearable. Not because of anything that was in God, but because of what was in them. What was it? Well, they had sinful hearts. And they see this display of holiness and they realize, we can't be here, Moses. We're not fit for this. You know, when you encounter the holiness of God, one of the first things you realize is, holy cow. I am not fit for this. You think of, of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. He's taken to the throne room. He has this amazing vision of the glory of God. And he doesn't look at God and say, that's really cool. I think I'll follow you. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. You see the holiness of God. And the first thought when you see it like this is, I do not belong here. Even Moses, the friend of God, trembled at the sight. It, it was a terrifying scene, so much so that they came to see in the core of their being that such a holy God demands such a degree of inner holiness that they were not capable of. That's how this whole topic came up in, in Hebrews. Look, look back at Hebrews 12, verse 14. This is sort of our segue here. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That pictures that scene at Sinai where people realize, I don't belong here. My sins need to be dealt with before I can stand in the presence of this holy God. You know, for most of us, we think of Sinai and we think of the law, the Ten Commandments, and that's right. That's where the Ten Commandments were given, but we have to realize there's more going on at Sinai than just the giving of the law. And in full transparency, I struggled, I wrestled with this text for days, really pounding my head against it, because my initial thought, and several commentators go in this direction, is that Zion's all about law and Sinai is all about grace. I don't actually think that's what this passage is talking about at all. Those are true aspects. This, at Zion, the law was given. Uh, excuse me, at Sinai, the law was given. At Zion, we are there by grace. But that's not the primary thing this passage is communicating. Do you remember God's encounter with Moses in the wilderness? Exodus chapter 3. God tells Moses he's going to deliver the people, and then he tells Moses why he's going to deliver the people. And God says to Moses, when you've brought the people out of the land of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. See, Sinai, excuse me, Zion was not primarily about the law. It was about the people worshiping. Now, in the Jewish mind, Sinai's worship was the greatest corporate worship service in history. It was the greatest gathering of, uh, of believers in worship in history. There were other great individual 
corporate, I mean, individual worship experiences. You've got Job sees the holiness of God and he says, everything I ever knew was, was wrong. You, you see Isaiah encountering the holiness of God and confessing his sins. Those were extraordinary, but they were individual. Sinai was the great corporate worship experience of the Jews. It was, it was the high point. But the lesson of Sinai was we can't approach this God on our own. In fact, you see Moses going back and forth there. He's the mediator between God and the people. And this picture, this trauma of beholding the holiness of God and realizing they don't belong there, it shaped all of Old Testament worship. And so Old Testament worship, you came through a sacrifice. You couldn't step into the presence of God without something dying for your sins. And the temple itself, it was, it was surrounded with concentric courts that were increasingly exclusive as you got to the middle. So you had the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and then the court of the Jewish men. And then you had the court of the priests. And then in the middle, you had the, the holy of holies. And only one person could go in there once per year. The, the high priest could go in there once per year just for a matter of minutes. He had to, to cleanse himself. He had to take blood for his sacrifice and for the, uh, for the sacrifice of the people's sins. And then he would come out and he would pronounce the blessing. But the whole covenant system is essentially saying to the people, your sin makes you unpresentable in the presence of a holy God. You know, the old covenant presented distance between God and man. And the people undoubtedly wondered, what's it like in there? What was it like to be in the holy of holies? What was it like to be in the presence of God? But that, that high priest, he was not accessible to most people, and so they really never would hear firsthand what it was like to go in there. But that's a summary of the whole Old Covenant. It was about sacrifice and rituals, but they had to be done again and again and again. And if you look back at Hebrews 10, it tells us why. Look back at, at, at chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's what, what Hebrews has been saying again and again. Don't you understand that the Old Testament, with all its imagery, with, with all its sacrifices, with all its symbolism and prototypes and patterns, don't you see that it was all intended to point to Jesus Christ? That's why it exists. That's the message of it. Don't you see that God gave Sinai to show us that we need a mediator who is able to make us fit to step into his presence? That's what Sinai accomplished. And the author shifts our attention now from Sinai to Zion. It's a stark shift. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God. You see what he's saying? He's saying when we gather in worship, we don't go back to Sinai, hoping once more for that once-in-a-lifetime experience of worship. You know, I think it's, it's interesting 
That's what so many churches do seek to produce in worship with with the light show, with the fog machines that imitate smoke, with the loud music. It's all, in a sense, an imitation of this, whether they know it or not. And Hebrews is saying, if those are the things you're looking for, you don't know what you're missing. Worship in and through Jesus Christ is unique among every earthly experience because when we worship through Jesus Christ, it's not about the sights and the symbolism and all of those things. In Christian worship, Jesus transports us out of earth and into heaven itself. He unites this room with his throne room as we gather and worship. That's what the author is telling them here. You know, you don't see all this with your eyes. What you're coming to, it can't be touched. It's not a flashy show, but what's happening in Christian worship is so much greater than even what happened at Sinai. And in these verses, he's talking about the privileges of Christian worship, the blessing of Christian worship, what's going on. We can look at it under three headings at Zion. First, the place. Second, the participants. Third, the proof. So he's talking first about the place of worship through Christ. Just as Sinai was not about the geographic location, the geographic place, but the presence of God, he wants them to understand the same is true with the heavenly Mount Zion. See, these Christians were once meeting in the temple, and now they're meeting in living rooms. They're meeting in graveyards. They're they're meeting wherever they can without being persecuted. And some of them miss those things, and he's saying to them, you know what matters? It's not the building you're in that makes worship acceptable or real, because when you gather in Christian worship, you are transported to the heavenly city of Zion. The Hebrew Christians acknowledge, they they know that when they come to worship, there's no symbolism, no sacrifices, no incense, none of that. Why? Because everything about our worship is heavenly centered. It's centered upon heaven. In fact, all those earthly things, they were just replicas. The the Holy of Holies and the, the altars and all of that were replicas of the heavenly realities. Now, it's fascinating to me that Hebrews doesn't say, one day you will come to Mount Zion. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. In an earthly sense, Mount Zion, it was the highest point in Jerusalem. It was in the southeast corner of the city. It was a fortress. But it also came through the Old Testament to be understood as the dwelling place of God. Psalm 99, verse 2, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Psalm 135, 21, Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And the author of Hebrews wants us to understand we're not talking about a plot of land with Zion. We're talking about the heavenly city, the city of the living God, as he calls it. And so he's saying to his flock, dear ones, I know you miss what you left behind. You miss the temple. You miss the sights and the sounds. You miss the sacrifices. You miss the priesthood. But all of that, it was just a shadow of what was to come in Christian worship. You know, the heavenly Zion that we have come to, according to Hebrews, is the dwelling place of God. Turn with me to Revelation 5 for a minute. I want you to see this with your own eyes. 
Hebrews is saying, you have come to Mount Zion. Revelation 5 shows us a picture of what happens at Zion. Excuse me, look at Revelation 14. My bad. We're going to come back to 5 in a few moments. Revelation 14. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written upon their foreheads. Here's what he's saying when he says, You have come to that scene. As we worship in Christian worship, as we gather in Christian worship, spiritually speaking, the gap between heaven and earth is done away with, and our worship translates us mysteriously into heaven. Our eyes cannot yet see it, but our hearts behold it because of the Word of God. Zion is the place where God in His Son dwells with His people, and in Christian worship, we dwell with Him. There's a subtle but wonderful comparison here. Moses stayed at Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, but Zion is the permanent dwelling place of God and His people. Sinai was a place of doom and terror, Zion is a place of joy and everlasting life. And so that's the place that we worship. It's not a a geographical place, but it's the heavenly city that we transport into when we gather in Christian worship. And then Hebrews lays out for us the participants that come together in worship. And you can imagine these Hebrew believers, and some of you understand this very, very well because you've left churches behind. You've left churches behind over matters of biblical faithfulness, and you miss things there. You miss the people, or you miss the building, or the ways things were done, and so you understood that. Well, these Hebrew believers, they left their families behind. They left the priesthood, which was really all the religious structure of Israel in their day. They left behind loved ones. Some, you have to assume there were husbands who left wives behind and wives who left husbands behind or children who left their parents behind. And now the numbers are getting even thinner because people are fleeing persecution. And so they look around and worship might be pretty sparse. And the author of Hebrews wants to be sure that they're not discouraged. And so he says to them, when you participate in worship, you're not alone. Let me just tell you, What's going on? And, and he pulls back the curtain a little bit for them to see into heaven what's happening as you and I gather in worship. First, he says, we're joined by innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now, we know angels, the holy angels, love to serve God. According to the deacon Stephen in Acts 7.53, they were at Sinai in the giving of the law. We know the angels will one day return with Jesus to judge the earth. But here, they're not in in a judge's gown. They're gathered in joyful, exuberant praise. Do you ever think of angels just praising their heads off? That's what they're doing. It's what they were doing in Isaiah, in Isaiah's vision. That's what they're doing here. And if you turn to Revelation 5... You'll see that now. I want you to see this scene, how it, it, it agrees with exactly what we're told when he says you've come to innumerable angels. Look at Revelation 5, starting at verse 11. John's peering behind the curtain into heaven, and, 
And he says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. And they're saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's an incredible scene. Thousands of thousands of angels. One angel killed hundreds of thousands of God's enemies in one night. Here we have hundreds of thousands of angels gathering in worship. It's an astounding scene. In fact, if we have our wits about us and we're reading this, we have to think to ourselves, well, what in the world would I be doing there? What do I have to do with this scene? This is a scene for the the best of the best in God's kingdom, isn't it? Well, yes, it is, but, but I want you to see the second thing. Look at verse 23. We're told who else is there. The first, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That word firstborn is used nine times in Scripture in the New Testament. Seven of them speak of Jesus. He is the firstborn among all creation. He's the one that is deserving of that title. And yet we who belong to Jesus have been adopted into the family of God. And through our union with him, we receive all the privileges of firstborn sons and daughters. The main right of the firstborn was the right of inheritance, and Romans 8.17 tells us we are co-heirs with Christ. Do you realize what that means? There's no second and third and fourth children in heaven. All of the redeemed, all who belong to Jesus Christ, are firstborn sons through our union with him. We have a right to all the privileges of sonship. And there's a gentle application that the author's making here because we spoke in the previous section about Esau. You remember Esau? He's the one that traded his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of porridge, for a bowl of soup. He gave up his firstborn status in exchange for temporary comfort and pleasure. It's exactly what those who are leaving the church were doing. They were giving up their firstborn status to seek comfort and pleasure. And the Lord is saying gently to the people, you know, you can do that. You can forsake Jesus Christ, but when you do, you are forsaking your birthright and everything that comes with it. Then that word enroll, look at that in verse 23. The firstborn who are enrolled, or other versions say registered, in heaven. It's a Greek word that's used to talk about the census. So in Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary had to go down to Jerusalem to be registered for the census, it's that same word, to be registered. Do you get what it's saying? If you belong to Jesus Christ, then your name is written already in the census of heaven. You belong Another word for the census of heaven would be the Lamb's book of life. If you belong to Christ, you do belong there. So you'd be looking around thinking, what do I have to do with all these angels and all this glorious gathering? And Hebrews is saying, you're right there among them. You belong right there through Christ. In fact, look with me at Philippians 3 for a moment.
In Philippians 3, Paul's been describing the enemies of Christ. And in verse 19, he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. And he's contrasting that in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in college, I I had a mailbox where my mail came, and I had that mailbox for four years, and I graduated, and then they gave it to somebody else, and then that person graduated, and they gave it to somebody else. That was never my real mailing address. It was just temporary. My real mailing address was in Beaufort. Beloved, what Paul's saying in Philippians 3, what, what Hebrews is saying is your real citizenship, your home address is in heaven. Your earthly address, your your space in this world, it is all temporary. It is all passing away. Heaven is your real home. You're registered on the census. Then he says, you come to God, the judge of all. The image of the judge takes us back to Sinai where God delivers them from slavery and then he gives them the law to show them how to live as his redeemed people, and the presence of the judge, even here in heaven, reminds us that God's law will never pass away. The Ten Commandments are eternally true because they are, are, are shaped and rooted in the character of the lawgiver and the judge himself. Now, here's the problem for you and me. The problem for you and me is if we look to our own obedience to the law for salvation, we cannot stand before the judge. Never in a million lifetimes could you and I keep the law well enough to meet its demands. And if we try to earn our way to God by being the law keeper, then we will stand before him one day and he will be the judge and the verdict will be guilty. But when we come through Christ to him, then we have been reconciled to this judge and the judgment seat becomes a place not of peril but of promise rather than warn to keep away as at sinai we're commanded in hebrews 10 verse 20 to draw near with confidence why because our sins are forgiven for all who are in christ draw near because your sins are forgiven the confidence of the believer is that the judge will bring the enemies of his people to the bar in judgment but this judge has already delivered the sentence I deserve to Jesus Christ and he will receive me fully because of what Jesus has done then it says the spirits of the righteous made perfect when what it's saying here and borrowing the language of Hebrews when we gather in worship we're actually joining our our voices with the church Catholic the church throughout the world in all ages We're not talking about communion with the dead. We're talking about this heavenly worship where our brothers and sisters who, to borrow Hebrews' language, they've already finished the race. They have gone on before us. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for that day? Uh, Not just to see them, but to see the saints who have gone before us perfected. You know, you and I know each other. We may get to know each other really well, 
but none of us really knows each other the way that God has created us to reflect His image uniquely because our personalities are obscured by sin. They're obscured by insecurities. They're obscured by sensitivities that are, are unbecoming of, of, of the image of God. And one day, all of those imperfections will be a thing of the past, and we will see each other in joyful worship, not as sin has marred us, but as God has perfected us. That's going to be a joyful day to see one another free from sin. There will never in heaven be a moment of hurt feelings or offense. There will never be a moment of feeling slighted. That does, I think, for us today, set the standard of what we as a church family are to pursue. That we as individuals are to do everything by the help of the Holy Spirit to grow in Christ's likeness so that we can begin to enjoy that kind of fellowship here and now. As we grow to be more like Christ in this life, fellowship becomes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. It becomes a foretaste of heaven. And so what that means is every one of us has a duty, an obligation to be killing sin in ourselves and forgiving sin in one another so that we may enjoy the foretaste of that heavenly communion that will be ours for eternity in Jesus Christ. Now, all of that is reason enough to long for heaven. But better than all of it, if none of that was there, look at the next participant. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The face of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful face in all of existence. And when we gather in corporate worship we are gathering in the presence of jesus christ we we see him dimly today in glory we will see him as he is in his resurrection body the language of mediator there is significant moses had been the mediator between god and man but moses was a sinner and moses would one day die moses couldn't make anyone perfect but when we come through Jesus, we are invited immediately into the presence of God because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. He's a better mediator and his is a better covenant. And through his death, he satisfied all the legal demands that were given at Mount Sinai. The law was given at Sinai and Christ kept it perfectly for our sakes and he carried it to Calvary where he bore our sins. And now he leads us in joyful procession to Mount Zion where he is our God and we are his people and we will dwell with him securely forever and ever and ever. We're going to sing in just a few minutes. John Newton, let us love and sing and wonder. Listen to this line. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. The Old Testament saints, they worshiped from a distance, but we are invited right in to the presence of God. Those are the participants of worship. Do you realize that every time we come in here, we're gathering alongside all of that, the innumerable angels and the society of the firstborn, and God the judge. We're gathering in the, the presence of the spirits made perfect. 
and in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. It sounds too good to be true. That may be why some were leaving. I can't see it, so I can't imagine it. But Hebrews is going to give them proof. At the end of verse 24, he shows them the receipts. Look at that. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That word, that line at the end, verse 24, the blood of Christ being a better word, a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a strange saying, but I want you to remember back to Genesis chapter 4. Cain has killed Abel. The Lord says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? I don't know. I'm a brother's keeper. And the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Abel's blood called for justice. According to what Cain, the hateful elder brother, did to the younger brother by shedding Abel's blood. The blood of Christ, our good elder brother, calls for grace and forgiveness according to what Christ has done for us. How much better is the blood of Christ? We've seen that throughout Hebrews. His blood guarantees eternal redemption from our sins, Hebrews 9.12. It, it, it guarantees the putting away of our sins, Hebrews 9.26. The purging of an evil conscience, Hebrews 10.22. The perfecting and the sanctifying of God's people, Hebrews 10. And our participation in the heavenly Jerusalem. The blood of Jesus is the proof that all this is true. And it's not just something we wait for in the future. It's ours now. Beloved, Satan's always going to tell you that there is something better than Jesus. This text proves that there is nothing better. And our longing for something better in this world should never drive us away from Jesus. It should always drive us towards him because he is the one who is ultimately real and lasting. What did we sing a couple moments ago? Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Sinai was temporary, and this whole world is temporary. Zion and the dwelling place of God himself and the society of the firstborns, that is eternal. This section, as weighty as it is, it's the crescendo of the book. He's saying if you're looking for something visible, something temporary, something exciting, you're actually missing out. If you go back to Old Covenant worship, you're missing out. It's flashy, it's visible, but it is fading away. When your heart is set upon God, seeking Him day by day, coming through Christ at Holy Mount Zion, this is what is real and lasting and true. This week, two of the giants of our faith in our denomination went to be with the Lord. One was expected as Tim Keller had had pancreatic cancer, suffering for three years. The other, Harry Reeder, was as vibrant as any pastor alive, even up to the moment the Lord took him home through a car crash. They were both imperfect men, but for both of them, in the matter of a moment, the veil was taken away. Their faith came sight, and they both beheld the face of the Jesus whom they loved so much and served for their whole lives. Friends, one day you and I are going to encounter Jesus as well. 
We will encounter him face to face. Either you will encounter him after a lifetime of trying to do enough to earn your way, to be enough, to prove yourself, to be your own mediator, trying to cover your own guilt. Or you will be clothed in his righteousness alone. If you come to that moment of death without faith in Jesus Christ, your experience of standing before God will be infinitely more terrifying than anything the Jews saw at at Sinai. And you will be measured according to the law. And if you have broken it in even one place, even just in your heart, and you have, you will hear a guilty verdict. But when you come through Jesus Christ, you stand before him, not on the merits of your own righteousness, but on the merits of Christ's righteousness. And you take your place among the firstborn who are heirs. Let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. How do we apply this text? Just one point of application, and that is, I'm going to plead with you, beloved, to spend your days training yourself to think and live unto heaven. You see, Jesus has opened heaven to us. The more we seek these heavenly realities during the days of our life, the more real they become. But the problem for most of us isn't that Jesus hasn't really opened up heaven and given us citizenship at Zion. The problem is we're so earthbound that we don't notice. We're so worldly that these things, they sound nice, but they're really not that important to us. And so you and I must train ourselves to be more and more and more heavenly minded so that the benefits of Zion these things that we're talking about become realities for us today. How do we do that? How do we train ourselves to be heavenly minded? We'll go back to Hebrews 12, 1. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What are the hindrances? What are the sins that entangle? You know, I think for most of us in here, our hearts are for Jesus. We, We love Jesus, and yet we become so preoccupied with work and other things that we do not take time to think deeply about Jesus, to ponder heaven, to study the word. We would never say they're not priorities, but how often do days pass by where we've given nothing more than a few minutes to ponder heavenly realities? Those are the things that hinder We need to reorient our moments and our days so that our highest priority above everything else is to think deeply about Jesus and the benefits of the gospel. The more deeply we think about them, the more joyfully we will sing about them when we gather in corporate worship. What about the entanglements? The entanglements are unrepented sin. We've talked about this over the last two weeks, but there is great danger in continuing in unrepentant sin. Seeing our sin, acknowledging that it's there, but sort of just leaving it without fighting it, without putting it to death. That's unrepentant sin. And most of us want to know, is my unrepentant sin going to keep me out of heaven? 
That's the wrong question from the start. You see, what is so dangerous about unrepentant sin is that it anchors our hearts and our affections to this world. We cannot be heavenly minded when our our hearts are so earthly grounded. And unrepentant sin does that so that we live more and more for the fleeting pleasures of this life. And when we talk about those solid joys and lasting pleasures that none but Zion's children know, that's foreign. It might as well be in another language to you because you've never tasted it. Why? Because you're so busy nibbling at the table of the world. And when we see our sin and do not repent of it, we are pulling up a chair at the table of this world and saying, this is enough for me. Your soul is in danger if you persist in unrepentant sin, if you see it and you're content with it to be there. But more than, more than that, the question isn't whether you'll get into heaven, but why you would even want to go to heaven at the end of this life when during this life you didn't seek it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there's laid up for me the, cl- the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. How could we imagine ourselves to be heaven-bound at death if we weren't, uh, we weren't heaven-bound in life? Seek Jesus. Live unto heaven. Live with a singular vision. fixing your eyes upon Jesus Christ, not letting yourself be entangled by this world, your citizenship, your inheritance, and your people are all in heaven. And more importantly, Jesus is there. And the face of Jesus Christ, that most brilliant face in all the universe, is there. And that alone is the reason that we are to fix our sights upon heaven. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, make us heavenly-minded. Most of us aren't. We, we confess that. Most of us, even as the Word is ministered and as we ponder heaven, we're often thinking about other things. We're thinking about earthly things. Forgive us, Lord, that, that we can be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Fix our hearts and our minds on the Lord Jesus and that true worship that is ours at Mount Sinai, at, at Mount Zion. Lord, help us to turn away from the flashy and the fancy. Help us to turn away from our own sense of self-righteousness and come by grace through the cross to Zion.